Audi. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. You're listening to The Big Travel Podcast. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand, and we're here to explore life stories through travel. On this week, we have a brilliant guest for you. She's written a book called The Salt Path. It's about a time where everything fell apart, and it's a story of hope and triumph over adversity and much more. In the same week bailiffs took away the family home, Raina Wynne and her husband, Moth, found out completely out of the blue that Moth had a terminal illness. Destitute and homeless, they set off to backpack along the windswept cliffs of the southwest coast path that runs the length of the west coast of England, 630 miles of unforgiving terrain. With very little money for food and only a tent for shelter, they began to walk and walk and walk. This is their story. I read your book and it is, your story is incredible. And I think what's even more incredible is that just to set the scene, here we are sitting in central London, in the Strand, in the offices of Penguin, who have published your book. And just a few short years ago, you were kicked out and homeless and couldn't really see what was in your future. You must be feeling incredible, confused, strange right now. How, how are you feeling? Confused would, would sum it up really. It's, uh, it's been a roller coaster from being at the very bottom in life to, to here, like you say, sitting on the strand. It's been a strange journey. <laughs> and your, your book is wonderful. Let's start from the beginning. Tell me, tell me how you found yourself homeless, first of all. Well, we didn't expect to become homeless, that's for sure. We were living in a property that we'd bought 20 years previously in Wales. We'd bought it as a ruin and restored it ourselves completely with our own hands. So we were learning electrical wiring and everything else along the way. And our children had grown up there, so it was our family home. Not only that, we'd converted some buildings into holiday lets, which was our business, so our income. But along the way, we'd made an investment with a friend of my husband, Moths, a lifelong friend, they'd grown up together. We'd invested in one of his businesses, which failed. And we found that unbeknown to us, in the small print, we had become liable for debts, which we believed was untrue, but the court found otherwise. And so we were served with an eviction notice from our property, which they claimed as payment for liabilities that we felt weren't ours. We had just a week to leave our small farm to pack everything up and get rid of everything and find somewhere to go because we had nowhere to go. So 
were facing homelessness. But during that week, while we were packing boxes, uh, my husband had a hospital appointment with a consultant who we thought was going to tell us that uh, a problem he'd had with his shoulder was just ligament damage, but he didn't. He sat on the corner of his desk and told us that my husband had a terminal disease, a neurodegenerative brain disease that had no treatment and no cure and that there was nothing that he could do except say, here's a little bit of physiotherapy that might keep you moving for just a little bit longer. So not the best week of our lives. You must have have been in utter shock. You have lost your home, your house, the place you've worked and lived for 20 years and plunged all your money into it. And you've just been told that your husband has not got long to live. That's it, absolutely. We were were shocked, we were stunned. Everything that we'd based our life on was gone. Everything that we were basing our future on was gone. My husband's future looked very, very limited and what time we had left together seemed to be just a very quick decline. So, yeah, shocked, stunned. In the early part of the book, you're hiding underneath the stairs when the bailiffs come round. That's right. It was the day that the bailiffs were coming to change the locks on the door. We almost moved out except for a few little things, but we weren't ready to go. We just weren't ready to make that last step over the threshold. And we were just sitting under the stairs because it was a dark corner and they couldn't see us. <laughs> we knew we'd got to go, but it was just that last moment. And then I saw a book in a packing case just in front of us, and it was a book written by somebody who'd walked the southwest coast path with his dog, a book I'd read decades previously. And just in that moment, it just seemed like the most reasonable thing to do, to fill a rucksack and go for a walk. A few weeks later, you started that walk. And you walked and you walked and you walked. And it's an incredible story. Where should we start with the walk? Let's start at the beginning of the walk. You know, your husband isn't in very good health. Neither of you are fit because you've just been living normal lives rather than the lives of people that are hiking and walking and doing a huge amount of exercise. How, how were those first few days? They were really hard. We weren't prepared for the uh, carrying rucksacks up and down incredible terrain. The southwest coast path is 630 miles of really difficult terrain. Uh, It has an ascent that's close to climbing Everest nearly four times. So that's a lot of up and down. And as you say, Moth was, he wasn't well. So it was hard. Every day was hard. Just putting one foot in front of another was really difficult. What kept you going? Because there was nothing else. Because that's the thing that we had said that we would do. And we didn't know what else we would do. We were in a position of having nothing else to do. But also there was a sense of that was like our last little moment of of good health and time together. And it seemed like a, a really positive thing to do with that time. So there'll be people who won't know what this coast looks like. Paint a picture of the coast on a good day, on a lovely day. On a good day. Oh, right. Well, the the path runs along the southwestern peninsula of England. It runs from Somerset through North Devon, the whole coastline of Cornwall through South Devon into Dorset. It's not a walk along a beach, that's for sure. It climbs up and down with the cliffs that face onto the Atlantic. It it rises up cliffs that are a thousand feet 
it's it's not an easy path but at the same time it's a strip of wilderness that sits between the ordinary everyday life and the endless horizon of the sea it's a line on a map but it's much more than that it's a wild haven of wildlife and weather and ancient battered landscape that can change your life in remarkable ways <laughs> on a bad day it can be very wild and terrifying i, I know you encountered some particularly scary weather along the way. What was it like when you were sitting in the tent? There's just the two of you with a tiny piece of canvas between you and the elements. That must have been quite terrifying. Absolutely, it was It was a journey of, of real contrast in weather. When the weather changes for the worse there, it really does batter in. There was a point near Land's End where we'd walk towards Land's End in a horrendous storm of horizontal rain and, and like dermal abrasion of sand. It was, it was a terrible day. We got to Land's End and there was not a soul there in what is quite a, a tourist hotspot. If there wasn't a soul there, it was just rain and wind and weather. But we walked beyond that built area back into the blocky granite cliffs of the Land's End Peninsula. And that was just us alone at the edge of the Atlantic. And we put the tent up that night and all we had were two sheets of wet nylon between us and Canada. But at that moment, we realised that by walking that walk, we were free in a way we'd never been before. We were free to carry on walking or not, or to give up or not free to make choices that had we remained and fallen into the path of homelessness we may not have had the freedom to make those choices. And on the way you, you encounter such characters including some homeless people that are living in towns how did they react to you the hiking homeless as you were maybe the hiking homeless out. yes the homeless people that we met varied through so many different ways of living the rural homeless tend to keep themselves hidden in a way that you maybe the urban homeless don't so we came across communities of people living living in horse boxes and sheds but living together as a community People who worked within the area but weren't able to afford rents, so they were, they'd found another way of living. We also came across other communities of homeless people who lived in the woods, who camped in the woods and kept themselves incredibly private and very hidden. But equally, they went out and worked, many of them in rural jobs, in seasonal work that didn't allow them to find a rent because their income wasn't fixed. But also I think we found incredible kindness from those homeless people and they were prepared to help us even though they had nothing to help us with and that was amazing. We never felt in any way frightened or under threat when we were camping wild in the rural areas that we were but when odd occasion that we found ourselves caught in a town and having to spend our time there then was the only time was I think we felt we felt afraid and it wasn't afraid of nature and afraid of what could happen when the tent blows away. It was afraid of our fellow human beings, which is a shame. I imagine that when you're on that walk, you it might be quite a lonely experience, but also an uplifting experience that when you suddenly 
surrounded by people again that must be quite a, a shock to the system that's right it is it is because you you are so alone when you're walking there was just the two of us just walking for days and days we might just see an odd person but then when you're suddenly amongst people again the unpredictability of people I think is the thing that makes you nervous and I think people found you a curiosity as well didn't they I remember in in the book pepper throughout the book you meet people that talk talk about you being the old people but you're not old you you were 50 at the time yes. and you know if you look at you sitting here now and also photos of you of your husband you don't look like old people I don't know what was that must have been really annoying that they saw you as an old couple it was a surprise oh. because I haven't <laughs> thought of myself as old well, great, but um but maybe we were a little bit older than the average person with a backpack so maybe that's where it came from but and some uh, of the negative responses you talk about although being called old is probably not great but when you're especially when you're not but um some other negative experiences that people when you told them you were homeless people visibly bristled and sort of backed away that's right early in the walk we hadn't really thought of ourselves as homeless as such it took a while for that to sort of register with us what that meant so when people asked us how how come you've got so much time to walk so far you know so lucky and we'd say well it's because we're homeless and we've gotten we've lost our home we've got nothing else to do nowhere to go and they would visibly take a step back or recoil their dog on a retractable lead or draw their children closer it was a physical movement which was a real surprise to us because we'd been thinking we were the same because to us we were the same people that we'd been when we lived in a house and we just a few weeks different. ago you had a home and a business and a car exactly. and a life and a dog and exactly. everything else that everyone else has with a house <laughs> yes ordinary life I think the point of transition from one to the other for me happened when I was outside a shop. I was standing outside a shop doorway and I was counting some coins in my hand trying to decide what we would buy with the few coins that we had left. And there was a Labrador dog tied to a rail outside the door of the shop next to me. And as I was counting the coins, a lady with a large white dog came around the corner of the shop. The dog, the white dog, leapt at the Labrador and spun me round, catching my rucksack. The coins flew out of my hand. Precious coins. So I dived to the ground to catch the coins as they were rolling into the drainage gutter. So I was lying on the floor in the street with my hand down the drainage gutter, as you do every day. <laughs> and the woman with the white dog started kicking me and saying, what are you doing lying on the floor? We don't have drunken tramps here. I couldn't get up for a moment. I was, I was stunned by the fact that she was calling me a homeless tramp because I was lying on the floor. Whereas only weeks before, I would have been welcoming her into my holiday rental and life would have been very different. And in my head, was the same. At that moment, my sense of self sort of started to disintegrate because I realised that what I thought I was and what I now was was a very different thing. And let's just to be clear, you're not, you weren't playing at being homeless. You didn't have like a pot of money to fall no. back on or a house or anywhere else to stay. You had around £30 a week coming yes. in to live on, sometimes less than that through yeah. forces that you couldn't control. You were really counting every single penny and going hungry as well. Yes, we'd lost our home, lost our income, most of our possessions. We'd used all our savings on the court case and we had a small amount of income a week of about £30. And that doesn't go far between two of you when the food that you're buying is on the southwest coast path in the holiday season when everything is ridiculously expensive. And it's also got to cover things like gas for your stove and batteries and 
ferry crossings and it disappears very very quickly so we did spend large amounts of time eating super noodles i've done that myself actually <laughs> describe to me some of the characters you met i know you met some wonderful memorable characters as well what was the one that the person that made predictions about you which were quite amusing oh early in the walk we were passing through a wood and we were down spirited at that point we were what are we doing? This is madness. And we saw someone up ahead of us who was seemed to be practicing yoga. Very strange. And the woodland setting. But we, we snuck past him and didn't disturb him and carried on. But then later, when we were just sitting, he came past us and, and he uh, laid his hand on Moth's shoulder and said, you'll walk many miles and you'll be well. And we were what this is a little bit creepy and then he just stopped and he said and you'll walk with a tortoise and we thought okay this is an area of very odd people and kept walking but later on <laughs> we were in the last day of our walk the very last day and we dropped down into a little valley and ahead of us we could see a man dressed in a sort of safari outfit walking with what looked like a rope with a, a rock tied to at the end of it. And we're like, this is very strange, we'll have to go and investigate that. And uh, we went down to find that this man was walking with a tortoise on a dog lead. Tortoise called Lettuce. <laughs> I think it's a good enough name for a tortoise. As you do. So, obviously, some predictions do come true. <laughs> and he also said that you walked very far and you did walk very far. Yes. One of the interesting things about Moth's health is at some point it starts to get better and better the more he walks and suddenly you realise that actually he's not this person that's doubled over in pain. He's actually growing stronger and taller and fiercer as the journey goes on. What happened there, do you think? That's right. He did struggle at the beginning of the walk. He was finding it very, very hard just to get out of the tent and put the rucksack on in the morning and then we went through a really difficult spell where the drug he was taking for nerve pain we ran out of each thinking the other one had packed the other the extras but we hadn't so we had a, a few days where he virtually went cold turkey from goes which was really very difficult but slowly slowly after that he started to improve and we, we didn't really give it much thought other than he was walking a little easier maybe getting out of the tent a little easier in the mornings. But we reached this uh, cove called Porthelas Cove, which was a beautiful little bay against this. We arrived on a really still, warm evening where the sea was like syrup. And we swam in the water and the dolphins came into the bay. It was a perfect evening. We camped on the beach because it was too beautiful not to. Beautiful spot as the sun went down well away from the high tide line or so we thought three in the morning when i woke and i thought i can hear water and as i opened the tent flaps the sea had risen above the shelf where we thought it would end and was only a meter and a half two meters away from the tent so we we shoved everything we could into the rucksacks but grabbed the tent fully erected held it above our heads still with the sleeping bags and lots of other things inside sagging it down and ran up the beach with the tent above our heads and as moth stood on the beach holding a tent above his head in a pair of underpants he'd been wearing for five days straight i realized that he had actually run up the beach holding that tent above his head 
from a point at the start of the walk where he could barely put his coat on without help. He was now running up a beach. It was amazing. I was in awe. It was as good as it gets because we had been told his health couldn't improve and he couldn't get any better. But he was doing. He was clearly stronger, clearly more lucid. Everything that we'd been told wouldn't happen was happening. People fall homeless for many reasons, as you illustrate, but also there's problems with mental health and physical health. But do you think that process of walking, and I know since actually that you've unintentionally since you started writing about it and released the book that you've actually influenced other homeless people to get out there and start walking which must be very healing for them in a way as well well I hope so because we found obviously we were in a state of despair when we started that walk because of what we've been through but we found that although at the beginning we thought that we would just talk through everything and everything would work itself out in that way because we'd talk through it we didn't. We barely talked about anything at all. And really, our focus became on putting one foot in front of the other. And each step we took became a reason to take the next. That strip of wild land became a reason in itself and a reason to go on. And as such, I think it allowed us to let go of the things that were causing us so much despair and anxiety and allowed us to start to look forward to rebuilding our lives and rebuilding ourselves and our self-worth as well. Almost like when you've hit rock bottom, you've lost your house, one of you has been told they're going to have a horrible illness which will ultimately lead to death. Exactly. What else can go wrong? And after we finished the path, I I wrote, uh, after I'd written the book actually, I wrote an article for Big Issue. Which is a magazine, I should say, for our international listeners. It's a magazine that is sold by homeless people so they can get themselves an income. It's a great little magazine as well. Yes, that's right. So a few months after the article for Big Issue came out, I was walking on the coastal path and I met someone coming the other way who wasn't an average hiker. He was covered in piercings, carrying some very strange equipment and a road worker's yellow jacket. And we stopped to chat, the usual, where are you going, where have you been? And he said uh, two weeks previous, he'd been homeless on the streets of one of our cities. And he'd read an article in a big issue magazine about someone who'd been homeless and walked the coastal path. And so he thought, I can do this. And he'd filled his rucksack and started walking. And he said, it's the hardest thing I have ever done but equally I can feel myself changing already and I know I'm not going back to my old life. That was for me a really magical moment. I was so happy to see him empowered by taking control of his own life. But you didn't tell him it was you? Did you I tell didn't, him it was you? no. I asked, I asked him to come back and have some food but he said no I've got to carry on, I've got to find somewhere to put my tent and he was on a mission. I imagine that you wanted to take him in and feed him because there's a a good amount of people that you met along the way who were very good people and would say have this you know here's a hot meal here's a sandwich you know you don't have to pay for it describe to me some of those moments when people really helped you out it was really life-affirming when you really need it most for someone to offer you something it means so much some people did just genuinely give us a sandwich or a bowl of soup and when all you've eaten for two days is a bag of fudge or three pieces out of a bag of fudge, it means more than you can possibly explain. But there was another sort of series of incidents that was quite strange because 
unbeknown to us at the time we were walking along a coastal path, a quite famous poet called Simon Armitage was also walking a path. For him, he was giving readings of his poems in return for accommodation and meals. And it, he was being a wandering troubadour. But everyone knew that he was coming. But throughout the first half of our walk, he was a few days behind us most of the time. So when we arrived in a few places, they thought, simply because we were backpacking along the same route, that we were in fact Simon Armitage. We didn't know who he was, having never heard of him at all. So um, we just went along with it when people said, well, Simon, have a sandwich. <laughs> Well, okay, thank you very much. Whoever Simon is, I'm going to take the sandwich. I'll take the sandwich. We were even invited back to someone's house. Come and stay at our house, come and camp in our garden. We've got a huge lasagna. So, okay, Simon and myself (laughs) went back to the house. But you had no idea about this Simon. You knew in in retrospect that this Simon Armitage was walking the coast. But at the time you had no idea, thinking, well, who the hell is Simon? That must have been really confusing. We had no idea. But when we tried to get people to explained to us who Simon was because said, ha ha, you're such a funny man, Simon, just pretending to be someone else. So we just took the lasagna <laughs> and walked on. <laughs> There's another time that you uh, you get stoned in a group of, with a group of backpackers. <laughs> that sounded brilliant. That stoned. sounded like just the respite you mm. needed. Herbal remedies. Herbal remedies, that's it, yeah. Herbal Useful herbal remedies. remedies. Especially when you're not very well and in pain, you know. That's right. I mean, it's excellent night with the, they were the uh, surfers who lived the horse boxes and the sheds. They were very wary of us to start with, not one of their group just drifted in from outside. But old compared to them. Old, <laughs> much older, much, much older. But then um, they became a little more of a forthcoming when they realised that we were in a really, you know, we had no home and we were just drifting along. I think they thought we were more one of them. There's a lovely, another lovely point in the book where you, I think it's when you see Plymouth, when you look out and you see the ferry that you had once taken in what must have seemed like a lifetime ago when your kids were young and you went on a family holiday. Did you travel much before the walk, the Great Walk of your life? We travelled a little. We travelled around Europe in uh, our little van for a while when the children were tiny, but nothing major. But when we were camping near Plymouth, we saw the ferry leave and I knew it was the Santander ferry, having caught it before. It's a huge ferry, it's unmistakable. And it, it was reminiscent of our old life, of our life when things had been simple and easy and we'd gone on family holidays. And it felt as if we, we were at that point, at that cusp where our, our life had changed irrevocably. We watched that huge ferry head out across the channel and it was like watching our old life sail away. All we could do was pack our rucksacks, face west and walk into our new lives. At this time, your kids are in their early 20s and they've moved out of home, thankfully. What are they thinking about everything that's going on? It was very hard for them. They were both in their last year of uni. We'd lost that security for them of being able to come home after uni when they'd got nothing. They had to go forwards and find themselves immediately accommodation and income and there was no gap year. And it was really hard for them because they'd lost their family home. They'd lost everything that they, they knew at home represented so it it was very difficult my daughter was very very practical and you know like here's a new phone keep it charged ring me every day my son was like oh that's really cool yeah okay call me when you're back (laughs) (laughs) very different characters Mm -hmm. but I think 
it changed our relationship as parent and child as well because even though your children are in their early 20s you're still that sort of protecting hand and they're always your children whether they're toddlers or whether they're grown you always feel that as a parent that's what you are as a mother I think it made me really aware of how much the family home is part of being a mother what protection for them means so when you take that away then you have to completely reevaluate what that parent-child relationship is and how it's going to work going forwards I think for us it became more of a friendship between us and we all became friends in a bit of a pickle together and stronger for it in the end. What are things like now? Are you out of the pickle? I I know towards the end of the book I don't want to give away, I'm not giving away so much because I want to urge you all to go out and buy the book, but you're okay, you're sitting here now, you're not homeless I'm assuming, you've got a book out. How did the book come about and what has sort of happened since? We have found a place to rent and we now live where the coast path passes the front door. So we walk on the coast path every day. Moth went to uni to study for a degree in horticulture and garden landscape design, which he's just finished. So at his age, he has finally just left uni. A couple of years after we'd finished our walk, I was still acutely aware of how much that walk had given to me, how much I'd taken from it, and how it had changed my life. I wanted to start to write that down so that I didn't forget it. And so when Moth's illness progressed, I could have a way of him not forgetting it too. So I started to write it down. And when I started to write it, it came back so clearly, so as if it had been the day before. And I started writing and I couldn't stop. And within five months, I got the first draft down and it went from there. It's hard to get a book published. (laughs) Yes, so it's a surprise to be sitting here today. It really is. I think I've been very, very lucky. So here you are, a book out. What are the next plans? Well, as I say, Moth's just um, finished his degree. How's his health? He's not as well as he was when he finished the path, but he's a lot healthier than the consultants and the scans and everything else say that he should be so in some strange way his brain is finding a way to work around the bits that are basically shutting down for now that's where we are and so I'm just grateful for that. I know throughout the book you're kind of when he starts to get better you're kind of rooting him you're thinking well maybe it was a misdiagnosis you know you're kind of waiting for that sort of punchline that twist that actually unfortunately never came but luckily he's in better health than you anticipated. Yes he is I mean we we were told at the start of our walk that we'd be lucky if we had two years ahead but that's been a few years now and we just keep walking and he keeps himself mentally and physically as active as he can so far it's working for us i can see the film coming out of this book are you in talks with anyone yet well has been some interest so yeah. fingers crossed it'd be amazing i'm thinking meryl street maybe for you what do you reckon do you think a few uh, people have said that I, really? you know, I was holding out for kate winslet but i can go for meryl <laughs> either or really yeah. i think it'll be fine so you, you've managed to bounce back from it incredibly what would you say to someone who finds themselves in a position like that where they've lost everything i think everybody's different and everyone's reaction is different but how it worked for us was by finding something positive to take us forward to actually focus our thinking on something that would move us forward physically and mentally and what we found the walking gave us was the space to do that it gave us space and an incredible landscape in which to try to find a way of 
rebuilding ourselves. When you look back on that time, that immensely changing time in your life, what is the most memorable moment that really stands out? We were walking along one, one day and it was a sort of wet, damp, drizzly day. And we saw two old gentlemen walking up the path towards us. One of them was bundled up in hat and coat. The other one was wearing his bathers and flip-flops, obviously been for a swim. And as they got closer, I could see he was carrying a Tupperware box. And he was saying, oh, it was a beautiful day, beautiful Cornish weather, and offered me the Tupperware box. I said, would you like a blackberry? It was full of these glistening purple blackberries. I didn't want one. We'd eaten blackberries up to that point and had been tart and sharp and quite horrid. But I took one just to be polite. And as I bit into it, it was the most perfect autumnal flavour. Nothing I'd ever tasted before. And I was thinking, well, what is this? Is it some special special variety that's growing down in the cove or what? And he said, no, 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 this is something really special. When the mist comes in and lays a layer of salt on a perfectly ripe blackberry, what you get is something that chefs can't create and money can't buy. It's a gift of time and nature. And for me, that's what the Coast Path gave us. It was a gift of time and nature that allowed us to rebuild ourselves. My last question is always about music. And because I always think that music and travel, I know you weren't exactly traveling, but you were traveling. Um, Music and travel always, to me, goes hand in hand because people have more time to listen to music. I know, I don't know if you had any music on your journey, actually, but if you had to pick one song that reminded you of a special moment in travel, what would that song be? Possibly. Considering where I now live and that I walk on the coastal path every day, I walk up to a bench that's on the highest point near to where I am. And there's a field behind that bench that is full of larks, skylarks, all year long. This spring, they've been nesting in that field and it is full of skylarks. So when you sit there and they all lift off, It's the most beautiful sound. It's the most incredible sound. And it would probably be a sound that we've heard throughout most of that journey. So I would probably say A Lark Ascending by Vaughan Williams. Raina and Moth, we wish you both the very best. Thank you so much for sharing your story. As for me, it's back to London this week after six whole weeks in Spain, and I have some truly brilliant guests lined up for you here on the Big Travel Podcast. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.